This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update. I'm excited today to talk to Dr. Peter Hotez, friend of the show and Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital uh, Center for Vaccine Development in Houston, Texas, about his new book, Preventing the Next Pandemic. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Hotez, thanks again for being here today. Uh, in our past discussions, we've talked about your work on vaccine development, the importance of a global vaccination program and fighting vaccine information. Your new book kind of brings uh, those themes and more together. Why don't you start by just giving our audience out there a little bit of an elevator put pitch on what the book is about? Well, a, a lot of it is around my uh, uh, begins with my time as U.S. science envoy for the State Department and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. I did that in 2015, 2016, um, serving as Obama's uh, science envoy for the Middle East and North Africa and uh, uh, President Obama's science envoy. And I loved it. It was just very uh, meaningful and fulfilling. And the, and the idea behind it was I had been promoting these ideas of what I call vaccine diplomacy, building vaccines between nations, not only to produce life-saving technologies, but also to uh, to promote international cooperation, uh, countries putting aside their ideologies to work together for a common good. And, and I had that opportunity to finally explore it and very grateful to the uh, Obama White House for and State Department for giving me that opportunity. And 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 I was served uh, during that time in the Middle East and North Africa at a, uh, during a time of great turbulence. Uh, this was 2015, 2016. It was uh, at a terrible time in the Syrian conflict. Uh, it was around the time when ISIS was just gaining a foothold and gaining ascendancy, doing scary things. Uh, and then there was uh, the rising tensions in Yemen, which turned out to be a full proxy war between Iran and uh, and Saudi Arabia, so there was a lot going on, as you as you can imagine. And they had me focus on three countries: Saudi Arabia, uh, Morocco, and Tunisia, around for various reasons around the conflict. And that's when the light bulb started going off about how the drivers of disease uh, go beyond the biomedical things that we think about in terms of war and political inst instability, aggressive urbanization, climate change, uh, anti-science activities, and how they combine in unique and interesting ways, and not only on the Arabian Peninsula, but we ident I identified about six or seven other hotspots of the world, and this was all pre-COVID, and, and so a key point of the book was, and so I almost finished quite a bit of it even before the COVID pandemic struck, and then with COVID, I was able to make the observation that, hey, COVID is not the extraordinary event that everybody says it is. It's really a culminating event of an unraveling that's happened over the last five, six, seven years from things like war and political collapse and climate change and urbanization and anti-science. And, and so that's really reports on all of those things. And I think there's a lot of other side messages in the book. And, and one is 
as physicians, as uh, as residents, as medical students, as fellows, or as attending physicians, guess what we don't get trained in? War and political collapse, urbanization, <laughs> climate change, and anti-science. And maybe we should, because this is what's driving back disease in, in a big way. So it, it, it asks for a broader view around medical training and education as well. Yeah, you may not get that training, but your uh, physicians are certainly going to be on the receiving end of these trends uh, that you kind of spell out. And you said you, you talked about some of those forces. You even kind of refer to this sometimes as like a new era that we've entered where the combination of all these forces is really encouraging the return of, you know, vaccine preventable diseases we thought kind of had vanquished. Uh, you know, the reemergence of some of these uh, uh, diseases you call neglected tropical diseases, and then unfortunately, emergency of, you know, new, emergence of new variations. Uh, can you talk about, you know, the concept of NTDs and some of these vaccine preventable diseases that we're seeing making a comeback as a result of all this kind of, all these forces out there? Well, let me give you an example of a couple of places, and then I'll bring it back to the United States. So, you know, and and the Arabian Peninsula, you saw the the hostilities there collapse health systems. So we stopped vaccinating kids against measles and polio. And guess what comes right back? Measles and polio. So the vaccine ecosystem is quite fragile. And then um, with the cessation of vector control across Syria and Iraq, you brought back a parasitic infection known as leishmaniasis, which is causes uh, cutaneous ulcers on the face, even though it's not a fatal disease that causes permanent scarring and disfigurement, especially for girls and, and women. And and they even call it Aleppo evil because of its hyper endemicity now in, in Aleppo with, with the conflict there. And, uh, and then when Yemen, uh, you started to see now the world's largest cholera epidemic because of the collapse and addition to leishmaniasis and addition uh, to um, uh, to vaccine preventable diseases. And if it's not, if that's not complicated enough, you have the fact that you have unprecedented temperatures in the Middle East, um, up to 50 degrees Celsius in, in some places, which is drying up ancient agricultural lands along the Tigris and Euphrates. And that in itself is destabilizing, causing people to move into urban areas. And then some scholars would say, or political scientists would say, those climate changes it's, and global warming itself was a precipitating factor in all of the hostilities. So it really talks about how it's all kind of intertwined. And while a lot of people will now talk about climate change, my premise is it's not climate change acting in isolation. It needs those social forces to, to, to coalesce and create something that brings back disease. Another example is in Venezuela where with the Maduro regime, it started in the Chavez regime, but with the Maduro regime, we've seen uh, the collapse of socioeconomic collapse in Venezuela, causing people to flee the country, outbreaks of measles as people flee into the uh, Brazilian rainforest, coming into contact with Yanomami indigenous people, causing decimating uh, measles epidemics, going across into Colombia with the Wayu indigenous people, causing causing epidemics, and then people desperate for employment, working in the illegal gold mining industry where they're sleeping outdoors, being infected by malaria infested mosquitoes, all of that building together with a 40 year drought going on in, in Venezuela. And, you know, in the US, we've seen this to some extent for, for other reasons. Um, and that is this rise of anti-science where 
uh, whole segments of the country were deliberately defiant of masks and social distancing. And now four or five news polls say the same thing, that um, those same groups are also now going up against vaccines and refusing to get vaccinated. And now um, and the physicians uh, uh, in, across America, especially our resident physicians, are on the front lines and dealing with the horrible, horrible aspects of a of a COVID-19 uh, epidemic that took the lives of half a million Americans. And so these are the new factors that are causing disease to come back in a, in a huge way. And, and what kind of infrastructure, the question the book asks towards the end is, what kind of infrastructure should we start considering in order to um, mitigate against this? Just, you know, as as physicians and scientists, maybe not too much we can do about war and political collapse, and but there are things we can do to buffer um, those forces from bringing back disease in such a devastating way as they did. You know, it is it's so interesting how you pointed out the how these are intertwined and how when you think about war and political instability that causes you know massive ma massive population movement uh urbanization uh crowding in uh these mega cities that you're talking about are in development i think you mentioned you know that 40 percent of the populate pop you know poverty stricken population is going to be concentrated in a very small portion of the world in the near future and uh what that could mean uh, to, you know, the, the, the future of uh, pandemic, you know, right areas. Yeah, is well, what right? we're going to see is the world will coalesce into groups of these megacities, cities greater than 10 million people. And historically, the, the few megacities we've had in, on planet Earth have been London and Tokyo and New York. But increasingly, we're going to see these in low and middle income countries. So we're seeing the explosion of people in Lagos and in Kinshasa and people coming in from the countryside and living in urban areas that outstrip the infrastructure. You're seeing it in Sao Paulo. You're seeing it in and now playing out in Delhi with this horrible uh, COVID uh, pandemic. And now the epicenter is in Delhi and we're seeing the humanitarian catastrophe unfold there as hospitals get overwhelmed and the simple fact that how do you do social distancing in low-income neighborhoods in places like Delhi and uh, so so this is a new reality and what are the things that we can do in terms of building uh, vaccine infrastructure to have vaccines ready to go in a faster pace than we're seeing right now I mean India what is India going to do it doesn't have the vaccines it needs uh, in order to halt this pandemic in the next few weeks, and, and you know what we could have we what could we have done um, to to help in that? Um, what um, what are some of the uh, other things that we could have done to prevent this defiance of science that we're seeing across the country, across the United States, um, which is which is so deadly right now and contributing to the loss of so many lives. Uh, in in the country and and so the book really takes us a, a thirty thousand foot aerial view of, of this and and if for me it, it it was a fascinating to do work on the book because I'm not really a geopolitical expert um, at the end of the day I'm an MD PhD vaccine scientist developing vaccines but by making vaccines and being in a place where vaccines are needed for people who live in extreme poverty, 
it took me all over the world and this gave me a chance to see it through a very unique lens. Again, it just points out, you know, making the vaccine is just one part of the equation here uh, and getting it to the right places and anticipating that in the, you know, in a world where there are so many kind of global threats uh, that prevent what we need to get done. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, I, I, I spend, I spend, you know, I was, I was an MD PhD student starting in 1980. So I've been at this for 40 years. Uh, uh, and always aspire to make vaccines for parasitic infections. And now they're in clinical trials for schistosomiasis and hookworm and Chagas disease. And and now I realize I've just done the easy part. <laughs> mm-hmm. The hard part now is getting them accelerated and, and implemented. And you know, with our with our COVID nineteen vaccine, we have a, a a bit of a glide path because there's such global urgency. People are willing to move that along at a faster clip and. And that may become our first vaccine that we've actually licensed, um, um, which would be very fulfilling also. I found, you know, there are so many instances in the book where I guess prescient would be the right word to describe it. And, you know, you mentioned before uh, about the anti-science movement. um, And, you know, you wrote this book uh, on the cusp of COVID. And you say in your book, this anti-science movement could be a real problem now that you, of course, you have the you know hindsight here, did it surprise you in terms of just what a problem that has become and the global level of it? Well, I think you know where I varied with a lot of my colleagues was I saw the the anti-vaccine movement accelerating, particularly after around 2015, and that's the benchmark from the book starting around 2015. When, you know, I've been going up against it for years because I have a daughter with autism and written a previous book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism to debunk that, but noticed how the anti-vaccine movement to re-energize took on a political dimension and they linked themselves to political extremism on the far right um, under this banner of health freedom, medical freedom, and they started to form political action committees in Texas uh, and Oklahoma. And uh, and I saw that as really worrisome. And indeed, starting in 2020, those anti-vaccine groups that had formed under this, under this Tea Party banner of health freedom, medical freedom, now took on protests against masks and social distancing. And then I saw how it uh, moved into Western Europe last year. So if you look at the language used by the speeches at the anti-vaccine, anti-mask protests in London and Berlin and Paris and the Berlin one, they actually stormed the Reichstag. You know, it was the same kind of health freedom rhetoric that came out of the U.S., out of Texas, and uh, and even reports from the BBC and uh, New York Times that it was linked to QAnon. So this had taken a very dark turn with this globalization. Mm. And of course, that wasn't complicated enough. So now we have Putin weighing in on this, and, and the Russian government has launched what's being called this program of weaponized health communication, where they're actually filling our airways uh, and our our social media with anti-vaccine messages, in some cases, to discredit Western COVID-19 vaccines in favor of Sputnik V, uh, their own vaccine. So this has been extremely destructive. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. 
That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. And so what happens is anytime there's a real, there is a real problem, even though it's rare, it gets blown up by Russia and the anti-vaccine forces coming out of the U.S., like what we've seen with the J&J vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, or maybe one in 100,000, one in 200,000 cerebral thrombotic events, extremely rare. And yet this is now just you being used to discredit those two vaccines, which we need because, uh, you know, unless our vaccine gets up soon, these are two of the big, these are two of the important vaccines we need is our workhorses for preventing COVID in Africa and Latin America and low-income countries in the Middle East. And so this is how much damage it can do. And so now I'm writing a series of articles. Maybe this will be the focus of my next book to around um, this this anti-science, I don't know what to call it, confederacy or empire um, that has become so lethal. And and uh, and my my premise now is that when we talk about big things that we build infrastructure to combat, like uh, global terrorism or cyber attacks, cybersecurity or nuclear proliferation, the the world's leaders have put in place a lot of infrastructure to combat it, prevent it, or at least wall it off if it starts to happen. We haven't done that with this globalized anti-science movement, and I think we have to start going in that direction. Yeah, and as you point out, it's, you know, pardon the pun, being injected into a system that already has a number of forces that are complicating things. Uh, and, you know, and who would have anticipated that level of uh, kind of political machination attached to the anti-science movement to complicate that further? And I think, you know, to me that that kind of uh, feeds into the, the premise of your book around vaccine diplomacy, you know, how how do we have vaccine diplomacy when you you might actually see countries working against each other? Right. Uh, well, well, I think I think this is another dimension of the book um, that when we talk about um, you know as scientists as physicians or physician scientists when we're communicating, you know the message is always, hey, you're just the phys- you're just the doc, you know you're the physician scientist, you know don't go into that political realm. It 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 dirties your your image or your message, and and now I'm finding that's not necessarily the case because in sometimes, as physicians or physician scientists, to say we if the focus really is on saving lives, you sometimes have to get your hands dirty, sometimes more than your hands, dealing with uh, to not so much because you want to become political, but in order to yank the anti-science. Uh, out of the politics and expose it and put shine a light on it and to save lives, you have to go into that dark place. And and this happened to me, you know, last year when I was among the first to call out the the Trump administration for the anti-science disinformation campaign, saying the deaths were due to other causes and and um, the masks are don't work and the hospital admissions are due to catch up elective surgeries. And I was the first to call it out, among the first to call it out, not because I'm so brilliant, but because I've been going up against anti-vaccine groups for years. I, I, that became a second profession of mine, and and I was able to call it out. But it took me to a scary place, you know, to be on the cable news channels and talking about 
the politics of an anti-science and how to correct it. Um, and it's still something I'm not comfortable with and calling out the anti-science empire now. It's not easy for a physician scientist to be throwing darts at Vladimir Putin and and uh, what's happening on Fox News at night with night with the anti-vaccine rants. It's it's not fun, but I think it becomes a new necessary if if we want to be good people and good physicians. I think uh, you know I just uh, read an article in the Atlantic too about. Uh, the similar problem. And the thing that strikes me, it's obviously not a responsibility it can sit on your shoulders or a very small uh, group of people. We're, we're up against a pretty coordinated uh, effort, and it does take physicians speaking out and perhaps on things that they hadn't thought they would have to do and weren't trained originally to do. So that's very important. Um, right, but, but, but also it, it may force us to you know, we, we now teach, you know, bioethics in medical school and residency training, and I think that's fantastic. But we may have to look at version 2.0 in, in this new reality. And and because and the thing that would have helped me was having some tools to know how to do this. You know, it was, for me, it was all seat of the pants. You know, basically, it was my wife telling me, you know, if you don't do this, um, you'll feel terrible when you see the body count from COVID-19. And and that was the motivating factor. But I have to believe, had it been part of my training, I, maybe I could have done it more artfully than I did. I mean, I showed a lot of authenticity because that's, because that's what it was. It was quite authentic, but maybe not as smooth and elegant as, as it could have been. Well, I don't know that uh, I could go on The Daily Show and get uh, interviewed and be able to talk to different audiences in very different ways like you're doing oh, right that was, now. That, so was, pretty that impressive. was just fun. That was just fun. <laughs> Jabuki is a, is a great man. I love that guy. Well, just, you know, uh, I was remembering our last conversation and you were talking about, you know, possible routes because we were thinking about how do we accelerate vac uh, vaccination. And I you know, remember you had talked about, um, you know, the store, the kind of warehouse of like AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which is not approved here in the U.S. and, you know, how we might do that. Now we're looking at uh, you know, India and the possibility of the Biden administration talking about uh, you know, basically maybe releasing some of that overseas uh, and kind of lifting a ban against the export of some of the raw materials that go into making vaccines. Is this, you know, what you would hope to happen in terms of vaccine diplomacy? Yeah, it's definitely a part of it. Um, remember the scale of this. We're talking about over a billion people in India. And if we're going to vaccinate 75 percent of the country in order to halt transmission, we're talking 800 million people times two doses for most of the vaccines, that's 1.5, 1.6 billion doses of vaccine. How's that going to happen? Um, and, you know, we're trying to help with our low-cost recombinant protein vaccine that's being scaled now to a billion doses by Biological E in Hyderabad. And even that's not going to be enough, and, and we've got to do it quickly. So um, India has got some really, is one of the great strengths of India is vaccine manufacturing and production. So Serum Institute of India provides a lot of the vaccines for the world, as well as Bharat in Hyderabad and Biological E in Hyderabad and, and a couple of others. We need to give them all the tools they need to make that level of vaccine. Um, the only issue is that the, the game plan for vaccinating the world against COVID also depended on India providing vaccines for the world. And now what happens in terms of for self-preservation, India needs to 
keep those doses, who's going to provide the vaccine for Africa and Latin America? This is this is a very scary situation that we're in. Well, uh, that is, uh, you know, a huge challenge. And uh, I just encourage everyone out there uh, to take a look at your new book, Preventing the Next Pandemic, and learn more about, you know, what challenges physicians are going to face in the future and uh, the steps that we're going to need uh, to address those. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you're really busy. Appreciate your perspective as always. Uh, that's it for today's COVID-19 update. We'll be back with another segment soon. In the meantime, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This content was originally published as part of the AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.